I have to confess to you guys that I was tempted to put as this title page uh, a picture of Jafar from Disney's Aladdin. Because if you remember when Aladdin is crawling out of the Cave of Wonders, Jafar grabs him on the wrist and Aladdin goes, what are you doing? And Jafar says, giving you your reward, your eternal reward. But I didn't want you guys to sink down to my level of humor, so I spared you from that. Um, I've had the opportunity to speak on this topic a few times recently, usually in piecemeal fashion. A little bit of information here, a little bit there. Maybe by the time I'm done with my tenure, I'll have a fully orbed presentation. But if you've heard me talk on this topic, then uh, be encouraged because hopefully I'll include some things you haven't yet heard. Uh, if this topic is brand new to you from me, then uh, be encouraged again because I think it's, it's really easy to follow. And so here's the, here's the breakdown briefly. We're going to, I'm just going to say what this teaching is, this doctrine, quick. And then we're going to go over, uh, I'm going to give you an argument, uh, essentially, as to how this kind of is teased throughout the New Testament. And then I'm going to end with some uh, objections and responses. So it's pretty straightforward. So this view, as you could tell, eternal rewards, this doctrine or teaching, it essentially says that it's the view that faithful Christian service will be rewarded by the Lord himself at what is called the judgment seat of Christ. So that's what we're talking about here this morning, this teaching. It's a particular view of what's going to happen during the end times. In Matthew 19, after the scenario of the rich young ruler, Peter comes up to Jesus and he says, behold, we've left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? And Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration when the son of man sits on his glorious throne, in other words, when Christ comes back, you also shall sit upon 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So, straightforwardly, there's 12 thrones and the apostles are judging. Now, presumably Judas was in there too, so it can't be talking about him, I don't think, but whoever took his place, Matthias or whatever, it's not a figure of speech. These guys are going to be ruling over in the promised land when Christ comes back. The same line of thinking, though, is also found in the Old uh, Covenant, Old Testament. At the end of Daniel, uh, the angel says to Daniel, as for you, go your way to the end, and then you will enter rest, in other words, you're going to die, and rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age. So, Daniel has a portion, and presumably it's not the same portion as the apostles have on their 12 thrones or whatever. These are different kinds of rewards at the end. So, that's essentially what this is teaching, is that at the end of the age, people are going to be awarded or recognized for different things that you have done by being faithful to Christ. This is the training ground, so to speak, and it's going to uh, ring eternally. It has eternal consequences. Now, here, here's essentially the argument that I'm going to give. <sighs> Point one, excuse me, salvation is secure for believers. We're going to go over that. And then number two, though, there's still judgment yet to come for believers. Point three, this judgment includes both gain and loss. Point four, however, the gain or loss cannot be of salvation because of point one we're going to see. Therefore, number five, the gain or loss must be of reward. Is everybody tracking this argument so far? We got it? 
Okay, all right, let's rock. Starting with the first one, salvation is secure for believers. This is also known as eternal security. John 6, 39 and following, this is the will of him who sent me, that of all he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. There's your condition for eternal life right there. It's believing in the Son. There's a condition. It's belief. If you do that, presumably you have eternal life. John 10, 27 and following says, my sheep hear my voice, Jesus is speaking, and I know them and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. So that's what eternal life is. If Jesus gives you eternal life, it stands to reason that it's not taken away. If it's not, it seems to no longer be eternal. Romans 8.35 and following says, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Paul continues, for I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, you and I are part of the creation. And if there's nothing in creation that can separate uh, you from the love of Christ and you're part of creation and follows that not even you can separate yourself from his love once you get saved. Romans eleven twenty nine, Paul says, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. In other words, they can't be changed. They can't be taken away. They can't be canceled. Now, granted, this is in the context talking about Israel and their promise, but the point is, is that whatever God's gifts and his calling are can't be changed. And Romans 3.24 says that those who have been justified by faith as a gift. So, if God's gifts are irrevocable and salvation is a gift, it follows that salvation is irrevocable, can't be changed, can't be taken away. 2 Timothy 2.13, we'll come back to this verse in a little bit here, but it says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Even your times of faithfulness or faithlessness and your shortcomings don't seem to be enough to remove you out of eternal life. He's going to be faithful to you, even if you don't uphold your faithfulness to him. Again, we'll come back to that. 2 Timothy 4.18, the Lord will rescue me, Paul says, from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. If Paul's included in that, it stands to reason that believers are as well. He's going to rescue you from every evil deed, including things that you would think are too, they're too much. It's the straw that broke the camel's back. Not going to happen. Seems to be the case that the Lord will rescue you from it and bring you to his eternal kingdom. 1 Peter 1.5, you believers who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Your faith is protected and it's going to carry you through to the end is the idea. Hebrews 10.14, for by one offering, he, that is God, has perfected for all time, or no, that's Christ, perfected for all time those who are sanctified. 
So perfected for all time Christ by his one offering. You could couple this with the verse in Romans 8, which says what? Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. So this golden chain can't be broken. Once you believe and are justified, you are, as Paul says in the beginning of Ephesians, you are positionally seated in the heavenlies with Christ. Your salvation is secure. He moves you there. All right, here's the final one. I went out of order here, but Ephesians 1 says, In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance. Some folks think that the pledge is kind of like a ticket to Disney World or something like that. Like, yeah, it's a pledge to get you in the gate, but you have to have the ticket, right? So if you lose the ticket, then, then you lose the pledge. Well, the problem with that is that seems to fly in the face of what's being taught in the New Testament. John the Baptist says, uh, he who believes in the Son or he who has the Son has life. He has it right? John 3, 36. Or Jesus himself says, truly I say to you, uh, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and will not pass into judgment for he has moved from death to life. So if you believe in Christ, you won't pass into judgment. If you do pass into judgment, then Jesus is a liar. And Jesus can't lie, therefore you can't pass into judgment. There's your modus tollens right there, Max. That's the argument. All right. So salvation seems to be secure for believers. Now, somebody might charge me that I just ran roughshod over this doctrine of secu eternal security. And that may be true, but this is not, a, I'm not doing eternal security as a message. This is just a launching pad for what we're trying to get done here. Point two, there is judgment left to come for believers. Now, don't freak out. This isn't the same as the great white throne judgment at the end of Revelation. This is, this is more like a judgment that uh, would take place at the end of sporting events for the Greco-Roman games, where you get, you get uh, re rewarded by the judge for your performance. So Romans 14, 10 and following, Paul says, but you, he's talking to Christians, who do you... Who, why do you judge your brother? Or why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. So then, each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Paul includes himself there. He says, we. In other words, there's a time where we will have to stand before God and give an account. There's still a judgment to come even for believers. That's the only point we're trying to make here. 2 Corinthians 5.10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, he says. And we'll come back to this verse again as well. There's a judgment to come. James 2.12, so speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. Now, if you're not going to be judged by it, I don't see any reason to speak and act like you will be. So, sounds like there's something coming, nevertheless. And these next two verses can be used for the next section as well, but it still makes the point. Revelation 2.23, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will give each of you according to your deeds. There's something to come that God will specifically meet out to you.
And it's not judgment for the sake of eternal life. That's secure already. Let's keep going. Last one, Revelation 22, 12. Behold, I'm coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man, that means women too, according to what he or she has done. There's something to come where each one of us receives something from God. All right. Point three, this judgment includes gain and loss. This judgment includes gain and loss. Matthew 16, 27, for the son of man is going to come in the glory of his father and his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. Okay, we got it. There's something to come. 1 Corinthians 3, 11 and following, for no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. This is talking about Christian service now. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, and precious stones, those are the strong materials, wood, hay, and straw, those are the weaker materials, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. Fire is a sign for judgment. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet as through fire. So there seems to be a loss of whatever is coming. Once the work gets tested, somebody can suffer loss. 2 Corinthians 5.10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. You read that already? So that each one may be recompensed, rewarded, given something, for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Meaning that there is an outcome for deeds that are done poorly. That's all we're trying to show here. There's, there's an outcome for deeds that are done well. There's an outcome for deeds that are done poorly. So, salvation is secure for believers. There's judgment yet to come for believers. And we just saw that this judgment includes both gain and loss. But point four, the gain or loss cannot be of salvation. Why? Go ahead, Beth. Because of what we just talked about. And there's more than this. I mean, these are just proof texts for this point. But because of this, it seem, the, the scripture seems to say salvation is secure. And yet, there's a judgment still to come, and this judgment includes loss. So it stands to reason that you're losing something else, and it can't be your salvation. What is it then? Well, point five, therefore the gain or loss must be of reward. Let's tease this out just a little bit. Romans 2, 6, God will repay each person according to what he has done. According to is the key word there. What has been done? That's what somebody will be repaid for, whether good or not good. That determines the outcome. 1 Corinthians 3, 8, but each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. Now, it makes sense that I'm not doing the same labor as somebody else in this front row here, Isaiah. All right, we each have different things that we're doing. And so I would be, uh, I would receive a reward 
<laughs> maybe, maybe I'm wishful thinking. According to whatever I'm doing, you will receive according to whatever it is you're doing. I don't run a camp, right, Matt? So I'm not gonna get rewarded for that, okay? I'm not faithful at doing that thing. So it shows you there's, there's an individual, uh, an individualism, an individual grading scale, if you will. Mind you, you're, you're not competing with other believers. You're competing with yourself, okay? I, I have to worry about the trinity of stupidity. This is the guy I'm at war with that I'm trying to get to the end with. It's not you guys. You guys are my partners, encouragers. Hopefully I'm that to you as well. First Corinthians... 1 Corinthians 3.14, if any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If the judgment comes, the fire, whatever it is, if something is there, still, if it's left over, you get a reward for that. All right. 1 Corinthians 9.27, check this one out. This is fascinating. Paul says, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Now, there doesn't seem to be anything here that suggests this is hyperbole. In other words, when he says, so I won't be disqualified, he means, so he won't be disqualified, right? And he says, at the, he says in 2 Timothy that he's made it to the end. In other words, there's something about his Christian life that he at least expressed it's possible for him to be disqualified from but not salvation. We've seen that it's not salvation. So it's got to be something else. It seems to be whatever you get at the end. The only thing left, as far as I'm aware of, is reward. Hebrews 10.35, therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. Said differently, what happens if you throw away your confidence? This is the whole point of the letter to the Hebrews. They say, you have, you have need to be, uh, how does he phrase it? Uh, recommitted, re-enhanced, re-something, pick your word. They, they needed confidence again to keep going through and, and living out the faith. But when you read this, it stands to reason, what happens if you do throw away your confidence? Well, there's not a great reward, or you might say lesser reward, See, the problem with the position that's, that's opposite of this, that's antithetical to it, is you have to say, well, what happens if you do throw away your confidence? Well, nothing. You end up the same way as everybody else. That seems a little counterintuitive to me. All right, 2 John 1.8. Watch yourselves that you do not lose what we have accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. Now, implied in that text, at least it seems to me, is that it's possible to what? Not receive a full reward, receive a partial reward, anything less than full. Pick, pick your percentage. It doesn't matter. The point is, it seems to be the case that you can lose out, or I should say achieve less than 100%, whatever number you want to pick there. That's, that's the argument. Here's a cryptic one coming, it seems, for, for some folk. It is a trustworthy statement, he says in 2 Timothy. If we died with him, we will also live with him. There's your eternal security right there. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Pause there. That, that's, a, that's a conditional statement, okay? That is, that's, 
if I give Isaiah my keys, he can drive my truck. But if I do not give Isaiah my keys, he cannot drive my truck. It's a conditional. If we endure, what happens? You get to reign with Christ, okay? And we'll see something else like that in a minute, but that's what seems to go there. Look at this next, look at this next part. If we deny him, he also will deny us. Is it talking about salvation? Well, it seem, why can't it just refer to the line right before that? seems to be talking about the reigning part. You lose the reward. And look at the last line. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. This is like a first century poem, or uh, I don't know what you want to call it. The first and last part go together, and the middle two go together. Okay? If we died with Christ, we are going to live with him eternally. Even if we blow it, he's not going to let us go. However, there is a condition to reigning or to certain responsibilities in the kingdom when he comes. And these are contingent, these are conditional on how you and I live out our Christian lives. Because we don't have to do anything. You don't have to read your Bible. You don't have to come to church. You don't have to pray. Nobody makes you do these. God himself doesn't make you do these things. Unless you're a strong Calvinist and you believe in occasionalism, but we won't go there right now. <laughs> then you're just an instrument. Anyway, uh, he doesn't make you do these things. You get to choose whether to do them or not. And so what happens if you don't? Well, nothing. It all shakes out in the end. That doesn't seem reasonable. These are, these are conditional statements here that I see in the scripture. All right. So we just went over five points. Salvation is secure for believers, but there's still judgment. Judgment includes both gain and loss. The loss can't be of salvation because of the first point. Therefore, gain or loss must be of reward. It seems to follow. What are these rewards? Let me just talk about a couple of them real quick. We have authority, honors, which are sometimes crowns or wreaths, however you want to say that. There's praise uh, and treasures. There are, uh, supposedly are more than these, but these are the ones that seem to be most explicit. So I'll just touch on these briefly. Revelation 2.26 and 27 say, to him who overcomes... This is Jesus speaking. He says, I will give authority over the nations and he shall rule them with a rod of iron as I also have received authority from my father. Now, that doesn't mean you get an opportunity to become a tyrant. What it means is though that you, have a, you can have a responsibility to govern and to help people to do good. So the, you can see this kind of rolls into a theology of heaven, which I, I did a little bit on in a sermon quite a, lo, quite a while ago and we can't hash out now, but, but there's more to be said. That's why we need a fully orbed view or a fully orbed theology of all these things so we can see how they play into one another. 2 Timothy 4.8, in the future, there is laid up for me, Paul says, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to those or also to all who have loved his appearing. Now, you might say, well, aren't we all Christians? Aren't we all going to love his appearing? Well, maybe, but at the end of uh, the book of Hebrews, uh, God speaking, and he says, but my righteous one, in other words, my believer, will live by faith, but if he shrinks back, my soul will have no pleasure in him. You mean the, the justified man can, can shrink back so that God has no pleasure? 
Yeah, that's what the text says. It doesn't mean he's going to lose his salvation, but it means that you know, how, how are you conducting your life in God's presence right now? Are you excited to see him? Are you terrified like I've been sometimes, even while a believer? That's an indication that where, where are you in your Christian walk? And First John says, uh, perfect love casts out fear because fear has to do with punishment. So if you're worried about being punished by God, that shows that you're not exactly where he wants you to be. He wants you to be more intimate there. You got to boost our confidence that way. All right. There's also praise, 1 Corinthians 4, 5. Wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. And that makes sense that my praise, if I get any, <laughs> isn't going to be the same as somebody else's. The point is each person gets something different. But that's, it's like a, if, if this sounds too, I don't know, if this sounds too much like it's bolstering man, think of it in terms of uh, a father wanting to praise his child or a mother wanting to praise her child for something. You don't say that you're making too much of the child's deeds. You told them to do something and they do it. And the little kid comes and says, mommy, I, daddy, I did it. And you're like, yes, great job. Wonderful. It's perfectly in line with our normal everyday life. God will do the same for us. I sent you to do this thing. You did it. Good job, son. Good job, daughter. First Peter 1, 7, the genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Not beforehand, but when. So when he comes back, people who have done what he expects will receive praise, honor, and glory. That's a reward right there. What about treasures? Matthew 6, 20. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. What are these? Are they physical treasures? Maybe. But they could also be relationships. They could be treasures in that sense. The point is that there's going to be something there. I don't think it's just about keeping your heart in the right place. It seems to be there's something left on the other side or something awaiting believers. 1 Timothy 6, 18 and following, Paul says, instruct rich people to do good and to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. My first thought on that is, okay, but what if they don't? What if they don't? Well, then they don't get to enjoy uh, the blessing of being more like Christ now uh, than, they, than they will when they're in heaven. It's like, so what? So what? What if I didn't do anything? I get to enjoy it later the same as, you know, Mother Teresa or somebody like that who gave everything? That doesn't seem fair. I'm just saying. All right. Here's a few objections and then I'll wrap up here. What's this talk of reward? Shouldn't we be motivated to serve the Lord out of love and gratitude to him? You, could, you should be able to feel the force of this objection. It's like, are you telling me that we should be seeking Jesus plus something else? Is there something extraneous, something in addition to what he did on the cross? Well, no, that's not what the position is, is saying. 
He's responsible for everything in the first place. But look, we should be motivated by what God tells us to be motivated by in His Word. This includes love, humility, duty, and fear of the Lord. He also tells us to be motivated by reward. So it's not man's newfangled idea. This is God telling us through His Word to do something. Therefore, it's not something that we created, right? This is Jesus' idea first, not ours. Objection number two, isn't seeking rewards selfish? Isn't there a sense of selfishness here? Well, there's two responses to that. First, there's a difference between selfishness and self-interest, okay? To be selfish is just to be concerned about yourself to the detriment of others, all right? But to be self-interested is simply to regard oneself, and you can do that while still being interested in others. In fact, what, what's the great commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then what comes after that? Love your neighbor as yourself. It's assumed that you have a, a natural regard for your well-being. If you didn't, you couldn't look after anybody else. So selfishness is not the same as self-interest. This is, this is a doctrine that we should be interested in for ourselves. And the second point of that, do you guys remember the elders in the book of Revelation. What do they do with their crowns? We have a song about this. They cast them before whom? Before the feet of the Lord. Why? Because any good thing that we do anyway is ultimately attributable to whom? To God. So it's not a form of selfishness to try to do something in order to honor the one to whom the honor is truly due. Last objection. Isn't, but aren't these eternal rewards, isn't this kind of a salvation based on works? There's the kicker, and the answer is no, 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 a thousand times no. Salvation is unequivocally, make no mistake, absolutely based on grace alone. We're saved by grace through faith, this not of ourselves, it's a gift of God. We're being justified freely by his grace, Romans 3. Works play no role whatsoever, Eternal rewards, however, are by works and are based on our obedience during this life. In short, belief, which is trust or faith, determines our eternal destiny. That's where we end up. But obedience determines our eternal reward, namely what we have when we get there. So, in conclusion here, what potentially hinders our reward? Well, not being diligent in this life and the things that you've been responsible for or been given responsibility for. Destroying God's kingdom through gossip, arguing, and division. This is why I need to watch my mouth. Being distracted by things that don't have eternal value. Are there any football games on? You can go watch them, but did you read your Bible yet today? I'm not saying anymore. I'm not saying don't go watch the game. I'm just saying where are your priorities, right? That's what hinders our reward. What increases our reward? Being faithful in our walk in Christ. And that's a very general thing, but faithful in who you talk to, how you work, what you look at online, things like that. Growing in both grace and in our knowledge of him. You know, the, the ordinary means of grace, the essential means, Prayer, Bible study, fellowship with the church, 
using spiritual gifts, serve others. What does Peter say? As everyone has been given a gift, use it to serve others. And you say, well, how does that look practically? How are we supposed to employ these things? Well, that's what Brock's gonna be talking about starting next week, so I'll just close us in prayer. (laughs) Join me, would you please? Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word and we ask you that you would use it in order to strengthen knees that are feeble and build up those who are weak and tired, exhausted from fighting fights. But once they do, we pray that you would help us to encourage one another and all the more as the day approaches that we'll see you face to face. And whatever we receive, Lord, if it be anything at all, help us to realize that it'll be nothing but an honor which has come from your own hand and that we give back to you. For from you and through you and to you are all things. For Christ's glory. Amen.